It's a privilege today to have our missionaries with us today, Paul and Melinda Schleyline and their eight children. And we have been supporting them, praying um, for them, holding the ropes with them since 2008. And they have been serving faithfully in South Africa. And Paul is going to come and he's going to share God's word and some things that God's doing in their lives. So Paul, you come please and just enjoy hearing from him, his heart. And if you get a chance to meet with them, greet them after the service, we encourage you to do so. Paul, you come. Good heaven. Please turn your Bibles to First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, it's wonderful to be with God's people this morning. We've been missionaries since 2006 among the Tsonga speakers in rural Limpopo, South Africa. I arrived as a single man in 2006, and I lived in a little shack for two years, hauled my water. We had a serious crocodile attack a year later, and the word of that attack reached the ears of a nurse working in the ICU and triage at Vanderbilt University Hospital in Nashville. And she was studying midwifery. And she heard about this story and she communicated with the Myers family. And somehow I got her email address. And in those days, it was a big deal to uh, communicate. I didn't have email at my place, and so I had to drive to town. And we started communicating, and it was very early on I realized this is the girl I want to marry. So I bought a wedding ring and a plane ticket before having met her, and I flew back to the U.S. and went to Nashville, and I proposed to her two weeks later at her parents' home in Oklahoma, and then I came back to South Africa and built a house for us in the village because I couldn't take her back to the shack and over a series of months, we communicated, and then I flew back several months later, two days before the wedding, and we were married. We were in person for less than three weeks before we were married, and people often ask me, uh, would I recommend such a short engagement? And I say, no, that was Far too short, three weeks, far too short. I would recommend at least a month before you do something like that. <laughs> the Lord has blessed us since then with eight children. And like America, Africa is similar in that the houses are getting bigger and the families are getting smaller, but they do very much appreciate children. Whenever we have a new child, they say, Shibongo Shakula, which means your last name is growing. And they are a tremendous blessing to our ministry. We were able to give a presentation earlier uh, in Sunday school. If you'd like more information about our ministry, you can grab one of the prayer cards in back. Here we are in 1 Thessalonians. And the title of my message this morning is The Missionary Cycle. And we're going to learn today of how it is that believers can move from the local church to the foreign field. How do you get to the foreign mission field, and what is your role in that today? 
Most of you will not go to the foreign mission field as your calling one day, but all of us have a responsibility to be, as it were, in the missionary cycle. All of us must be on one of these three stepping stones. If you are a believer today, all of us, all of you have a responsibility to follow this wonderful example of the Thessalonians as they followed after the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to read our text this morning from 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 1 through 10, and then I will open us in prayer. And this is what the word of the Lord says. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness and awesome in your glorious deeds? Blessed be the name of the Lord forever and ever. For in you dwells wisdom and might. You give wisdom to the wise. You give knowledge to those who have understanding. You remove kings, you set up kings. Father, we ask you this morning that the Holy Spirit would do a work within all of us. What can we do outside of the work of the Holy Spirit? Whatever wound, whatever pain, whatever sin is in our hearts this morning, we pray that you would use the scriptures as a balm to heal that wound. Give us the courage to repent when we ought and to trust the scriptures where we're not. And we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Robert Moffat was a great missionary to Southern Africa in the 1800s. He ministered for many years before he saw real fruit, and one of the men who came to Christ was a man by the name of Afrikaner. He was an African chief. 
At the end of his life, Afra Connor gave this testimony. He said, We are not what we were, savages, but men professing to be taught according to the Bible. My former life is stained with blood, but Jesus has pardoned me, and I am going to heaven. That's what every missionary lives for. We cross oceans and cultures because we want to hear that kind of testimony. But it is not unique with Robert Moffat and Offer Connor because right here in our text today, Paul heard a similar testimony. The context of 1 Thessalonians actually goes back to Acts 17 in Paul's second missionary journey. He had come back from Philippi. Some people believe that he may have actually taken horses to Thessalonica because he was so badly beaten in Philippi. Remember the Philippian jailer? Remember the torture device of being put in the stocks? People had come to Christ in Philippi, and now he moves to Thessalonica. And when he goes to Thessalonica, we're told he was three Sabbath days in the synagogue. And as he preached the Word of God, as he always did, Scripture says some people were persuaded. Some people came to Christ, and others were jealous and rejected the message. It's the same way today. Our task is to faithfully teach the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit's task to convict them and to save them. We're not the cook. We're the server. We give the message from the Lord Jesus Christ. And some people rejected that message, and Paul ran for his life. They concentrated on Jason. They persecuted Jason, and were told that the brothers gathered Paul and Silas and urged them to go on to the next place. I love that because though the Apostle Paul was type A and he was an initiator, he was not a maverick going off doing his own things. It was the brothers who gathered him and Silas together and said, this is too dangerous, off on your way. How many missionaries should a church have? A church should have as many missionaries that they can skillfully and carefully oversee their souls. That's what the brothers did with the Apostle Paul and Silas, and they went on their way But sometime later, a short time later, weeks or months, Paul writes a letter back to those believers in Thessalonica, and we have a recording of that letter. It's called 1 Thessalonians, and that's our text here today, 1 Thessalonians. And we pick it up in verse number 4, where he says, we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. In other words, he says, I know that you're elect. I know that you've been chosen before the foundation of the world. How can he know that? He can know that because of the markers that he sees in their life. And in the process of laying out these markers, he's going to to give us three items, three people, you could say, three stepping stones that are necessary for the church to flourish? Do you want to send out more missionaries? Do you want to see young people moving from this culture to another culture? Do you realize the 
millions that have no option to hear the gospel in Vietnam and in Morocco and in North Korea and in China and in Mozambique and in Eritrea and Djibouti. If we want to be sending missionaries to those places, we're not going to get there in one step. It's actually going to take three steps. And all of you here today, if you are followers of Jesus Christ, you have an important part in that process. And we're going to look at those three steps today from our passage beginning in verse number five of the missionary cycle. Here's our first point this morning. We'll call it this, the evangelist. The evangelist. All persuasive gospel preaching has three parts. It has the Word, it has the Spirit's power behind the Word, and it has a godly messenger that proclaims the Word. The old Greek philosophers used to say that what would make a speech persuasive was three items, the logos, the pathos, and the ethos. The logos was the the doctrine. It was the truth. We hear that word in biology, the study of life, or Christology, the study of Christ. So you have to have content, but not only content, but you need the pathos. That is, you need the emotion and the energy and the pathos behind that message. And then third, you need the ethos that is the messenger behind the message. Paul's going to take those three, and he's, he's going to give us a kind of Christianized version of those three which will make a persuasive gospel message. You have family members, you have neighbors, you have co-workers. What is going to make your message persuasive when you give them the gospel? Well, here are the three. Here's the first one. We'll say this, the Word. Or the logos, the content, the message, we find in verse number five. Because our gospel, the gospel is so much a part of Paul, he could say it's our gospel. Our gospel came to you not only in word. First, the message might have, must have the right content. There's a man in church history named St. Francis of Assisi. Supposedly, he said this quote, always share the gospel, if necessary, use words. Is that a good quote? Well, I don't think he really said that, and it's a good thing because it's a terrible quote. Not true. We could say that God has given us three autobiographies about Himself. We have, first of all, we might say creation. We can learn things about God through creation. We look at Mount Kilimanjaro and we say, there is some great being far above us to to create such a beautiful mountain. But general revelation is not enough to save us. The second autobiography, we might say, is, is conscience. That is, within us, we have an understanding of right and wrong. The way Romans 2 calls it is, the the law of God has been written on our hearts. But even conscience is not enough to save because our conscience 
can be wrong. What we need is a, is a third way for God to speak to us. It's called Scripture. Special revelation. The truth from the Bible. I read an article recently called about, it was about St. Francis of Assisi, and it was called this, Was St. Francis of Assisi a sissy? Was St. Francis a sissy? In other words, was he the kind of guy that only had lifestyle evangelism, but he rarely or ever used words? No. Romans 10.14 tells us this, How shall they hear without a preacher? Answer, they can't. Which brings us to the question, what happens and what is the destiny of the unevangelized? What happens to the person in the middle of Uzbekistan or China or Africa who has never heard the word? What happens to their soul? Perhaps some of you have heard of John Chow. John Chow in 2018 was a young man who had graduated from a Christian college and he was determined to go to the Sentinel Islands off the coast of India to give the gospel to a group of people that were not only untouched by the gospel, but untouched by civilization. And in the end, he was killed as he sought to give the gospel to the Sentinel Islands. The fishermen that he had paid to take him nearby saw him being dragged by a rope around his neck, his corpse along the beach. And immediately there was criticism from around the world. What a waste of a life. How foolish. But John Chow believed that the message of the Lord Jesus Christ must be given to the lost in order for them to be converted or saved. What is the destiny of the unevangelized? People will answer this in three ways. Here's one view. It's called pluralism. Pluralism believes that there's, uh, there's like God at the top of the mountain, and there's many paths up to God. We might call this the Oprah Winfrey view. There's many ways to heaven. Desmond Tutu, who is the famous bishop from Africa, wrote a book entitled, God is Not a Christian. In other words, Christianity is not the only way. But then we have verses like John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Acts 4, 12, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pluralism cannot be true. A second view we might call after-death evangelism. God's a good God. He's loving. He's caring. He'll give us a second chance. This is popular with Catholics. It's called purgatory. Not in the Bible, but very much taught by the Roman Catholics. You'll go to this holding tank for a while, suffer for your sins, and in the end, you'll be released. But here we come to Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed unto men once to die. And after that, the judgment. No, the only view left, the the biblical view, is something we might call exclusivism. Which means that if we do not trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, we are excluded from God's kingdom. Acts 17, 
30-31, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And so that's why Paul says that he came to the Thessalonians in verse 5 with word, with doctrine, with the message of the gospel. This is why it's so important for missionaries to learn a foreign language. We make fools of ourselves. We make mistakes. We labor. We write cards and vocabulary charts. And we do these things because we know that the gospel comes through the Word. A story I like to tell about one of your dear missionaries who's sent out of this church, Seth Myers. The word for sheep in Tsonga is nymphu, and the word for nose is nomfu. Nymphu and nomfu. Easy to confuse those. And on one particular occasion, we were at a church in Mashamba, and he was preaching zealously, and he confused these words, and he happened to be preaching on the parable of the lost sheep. And he looked intently at the climax of the message and said to them, some of you might be that lost nose. He'll leave his lost noses for that one nose. You make those kind of mistakes, but we do that. Why? Because the Word of God comes through the Logos. It comes through a message. It's not enough to see the sun in the sky. It's not enough to have some form of morality in our hearts through conscience. That's why the emphasis of missionaries is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a place for drilling wells. There is a place for orphanages. But our foundation must be the message, the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel because only that will save and change a nation. Well, not only is the Word important, but number two, we would say spiritual power. Again, look at verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in Word, but, there's something else, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, that sounds wrong for a minute, doesn't it? came to you not only in word. I thought we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. I thought Scripture is enough. How can Paul say it wasn't only the word, it was something else? Well, the word of God is sufficient in this sense. It is our only rule for faith and practice. How can you know the way of salvation? How can you know the way of sanctification? The Scriptures. And yet, even the Scriptures, if not accompanied by the Holy Spirit, will fall flat. Why was Paul so successful as a missionary? Was it the methods that he used? No, the secret to Paul's success was the Spirit of God that had convinced his hearers of the truth of the gospel. And so we pray. As we teach the Word of God to our loved ones, we pray that the Holy Spirit would convict and affirm and pull and soften and call and change and illumine and transform because we know we need the Holy Spirit's power. 
Number three, not only the Word, not only the Spirit's power, but also the ethos. That would be the character behind the message. You know, this is the end of verse 5, what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. I somehow sometimes hear preachers say things like this, hide me behind the cross when I preach. Well, that might be a good statement if we mean help me to be humble. But we can't ever hide behind our message. We are there. We're a part of the message. And the speaker, the messenger, is a part of the message. That's why when we have the qualifications of a pastor in 1 Timothy 3, those 16 qualifications, almost all of those are character. One of them is the ability to teach, apt to teach. But most of those are character because the Bible knows how much character is a part of the message of the preacher. John Bunyan was a, was a great preacher many hundreds of years ago. He wrote my favorite book, Pilgrim's Progress. In those days, it was often illegal to preach. He was called a nonconformist because he would not conform to some of the man-made rules that his nation had invented. And so he was thrown in prison. And he was told that as soon as you stop preaching, we'll let you out of prison. John Bunyan said, the moss would sooner grow on my eyebrows before I agreed to stop preaching. And he remained in prison for 12 years, away from his children, away from his wife. Do you know that at the end of those 12 years, when he was released from prison, he was greeted by a church building packed with people because they wanted to hear from the man who really believed what he said. That's verse 5. It came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He was really persuaded by what he said. This is why it's so important for missionaries to live among the people. This is why it's so important for us to be salt and light in our communities so that they can see us. Missionaries should eat and walk and talk and suffer and rejoice and sing among the people. How dangerous are the missionaries around the world where they will parachute into a particular place, preach a message, give an invitation, hands go up, and then off they go. Oh, how dangerous that is. I've seen often where they might visit a missionary. He's been there for 10 years. He's learned the language. He's learned the culture. Few people have come to Christ. Now you have Joe American who comes in, doesn't know the culture, doesn't know the language, gives a message, hands go up, he's got his numbers, and now returns home. Made life twice as difficult for the missionary. Before he was among a people who were lost and knew they were lost. Now he's among a people who are lost who think they're saved. How important it is for us to have ethos behind our message. That's what will make it persuasive. Paul said it this way in Acts 20, in verse 18. 
to the believers in Ephesus, you yourselves knew how long and how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. Oh, you saw my life. You saw the life behind the message. So, point number one, the evangelist. Paul goes to the Thessalonians. He gives them the gospel. His message was persuasive. Why was it persuasive? Because it came in word. It had the right doctrine. It came with pathos. That is, it came with spiritual power. And third, it came with ethos. It was a godly life behind that message. And therefore, it convinced Paul that the Thessalonians indeed were elect. They were chosen of God because of the way they had been given the message. Number one, the evangelist. Number two, we might call the emulator. What's our next step? Some of you are new Christians. You come to Christ. What should you do now? Well, the Thessalonians give us a wonderful example of what to do next. Verse number six. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. The word for imitators there is the word mimetes. We get our word mimic or mime from this word. It means to do what another person does. And notice who they mimic. Notice who they mime. It says of us and of the Lord. Of course, we are to be imitators of God, as Ephesians 5.1 says. But oftentimes, one of the easiest ways to imitate God is by imitating a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 4.16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's a good thing to say. Paul could look at those baby Christians and he could say, imitate me, follow me, of course, as I follow Christ. One of my favorite men in church history is a preacher by the name of Christmas Evans. He was born on Christmas, so they named him that. He was born in Wales hundreds of years ago in the 1700s, born in 1766. He was sometimes called the one-eyed preacher because he was involved in a fight before he was converted and his eyeball was plucked out. So they called him the one-eyed preacher. He was very poorly educated, came to Christ in his teen years, and secretly always wanted to be a preacher, but thought he never could be because of his lack of education. On one particular occasion, an elder of the church and a friend followed Christmas Evans secretly up a hill, and they watched through the brush as Christmas Evans formed a kind of pulpit out of twigs, and there before the cows and the chickens and the geese, he preached the message exactly word for word that he had just heard from the preacher earlier that day. The first message that Christmas Evans ever preached to people He had stolen word for word. And one of the people in the auditorium had heard that sermon previously. And so they approached Christmas Evans and they said, you know, I could be really hard on you because I know you stole that sermon. But when I heard your prayer after the sermon, I thought, 
your prayer was so beautiful, I can't be hard on you for stealing the sermon. Well, what he didn't realize was that Christmas Evans had stolen the prayer as well. (laughs) What he did is not something we should imitate, but we can have some sympathy for him. Because why? He's trying to do what verse 6 is telling us. To imitate our superiors spiritually. To look to those who are above us. To do what the Thessalonians did. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. And the next step after hearing the gospel from an evangelist is to become an imitator. It's to become a disciple. It's to become an emulator. And we are to do this in a number of ways. We're to learn biblically as we just learned from the story of Christmas Evans. We see in verse number 6 the word word. We see the word word in verse 5. We see it in verses 8 through 10. The word is always central to how we're discipled. We're not only to learn biblically, but we're to learn painfully. Notice how they imitated the Apostle Paul. Verse 6. For you received the word in much affliction. That's supernatural. We can understand someone following us into prosperity, but following us into affliction? The greatest deterrent to our ministry in Southern Africa is the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is another gospel. It's a false gospel. It's the teaching that says Jesus Christ came to earth to make us healthy and wealthy. Do you want your life to get better? Do you want twins? Do you want a new car? Do you want a new job? Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, it's the opposite. Acts 14.22 says, It is through many trials and tribulations that you must enter into the kingdom of heaven. No, Paul could look at the Thessalonians and he could say, I know you're elect because you became imitators of us specifically within our affliction. And it wasn't with a bad attitude. Look at the end of the verse. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. I think a good practice would be for some of you to think of the three godliest people you know. Write down their name on a piece of paper. And then pray that one of them would become your discipler. Contact them and say, hey, could I just follow you? Could I learn from you? Could I see how to pray? How do you raise your children? How do you study the Bible? I don't even know how to pray. How do I do this? But I think if I follow you, learn from you, become an imitator, an emulator of you, I will grow in this area. I was at a conference not too long ago and I received an email from a young man that I'd never met, and he said, greetings, I don't want to freak you out, but I'm going to be at this conference, and may I just shadow you for this conference? I won't be in your way, I won't talk, I just just want to be around you to see how you interact with other brothers and sisters in Christ, and see how you pray, and see how you eat, and see how you talk to people, I just want to learn from them. I think that's the idea. In other words, I want to to emulate your walk with Christ. Do you have someone like that? 
Someone that you're able to follow? Have you ever been discipled? Spoke with an older man recently in his 70s. Christian. Said, you know, I've, I've never been discipled by anyone in my life. Now's the time to get in the missionary cycle. Find someone that you can emulate. And by the way, don't only emulate living people. Emulate dead guys, too. I would say that outside of Scripture, nothing has been more formative into my Christian walk than great missionary biographies. You're, in a sense, emulating them. Let me give you a few that have been incredibly influential on me. John Payton's autobiography, great missionary to the cannibals of the South Seas. Hudson Taylor's two-volume biography, or a shortened version called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. I still remember sitting in the parking lot of our church back in Wisconsin, late at night as a single man, reading Through Gates of Splendor, the story of the Alka Five who were speared to death. Jim Elliott and others, or To the Golden Shore, the story of Adoniram Judson. Oh, the stories of Amy Carmichael, David Brainerd, Henry Martin, William Borden. These are men and women to emulate. Well, here's our third and final point. We'll call it this, the example. You start with the evangelist. He gives the gospel, they come to Christ, they start emulating the evangelist, but there has to come a time somewhere along the way where you say, I need to start teaching other people. I've been discipled for so long, it's time for me to start discipling. We find this in verse 7. Do you see it? So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. That word example is our word tupas, from which we get the word type or pattern. It's a, it's a model of behavior. Second Timothy 1.13, hold to the example of sound teaching which you have heard from me. And they are an example to those around them. Let's look at some of these examples. Verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Achaia. So he, they're being an example in the way they proclaim the word to others. The word of the Lord sounded forth. We get our word echo from that. It echoed forth. It reverberated to those around them. In fact, Paul said, when I traveled around... I wanted to tell them about the Thessalonians who had come to Christ, but your testimony was so amazing that before I could tell them about the Thessalonians, they told me about the Thessalonians. That's how powerful your testimony was. He says, so that we need not say anything. Verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned from God to God from idols, to serve the living and true God. That is real conversion. In missions, there's a, a popular movement in Muslim circles. It's called the insider movement. The insider movement is a, is a method 
to make it easier for Muslims who become Christians to remain as Christians. So in other words, you have a Muslim, he hears of Christ, and now if he follows Christ, this could mean his life, it could mean his job, it could mean his family. And so the insider movement ideology says, this is what you need to do. Keep your name, keep going to the mosque, keep on praying with everyone else, but secretly you'll be praying to Isa, you'll be praying to Jesus. And and that way you don't have to suffer all of the, the consequences. Contrast this with Ephesians 19, verse 19, where they burned their books at a great personal cost because they were turning their backs on their old life to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we find here. You turned to God. That's, that's the word conversion, to turn. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. One of my favorite questions in our catechism that we wrote for the Tsongas is this. Why did Jesus come to earth? Answer, Jesus came to earth not to make us rich, but to remove the Father's wrath. It's the gospel. Your life may become worse in some ways after Christ, but here's the good news. We are born with the wrath of God upon us. We are not born on the broad road. If we were born on the broad road, or I'm sorry, we're not born on the narrow road. If we were born on the narrow road that leads to life, then we wouldn't have to enter there, as Jesus said. No, we are born on the broad road that leads to destruction. The wrath of God abides on us. But then Jesus Christ went to the cross. He did for us what we could not do ourselves. He was killed by the Father, Isaiah 53.10. And He removed the Father's wrath. And all those who trust in Jesus Christ alone will have eternal life. That's verse 10. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Why do we come to Christ? For a better life? No. We come to Christ so that we would be saved and delivered from the wrath to come. So question, where are you in this cycle? Incidentally, this cycle just keeps on going around. The evangelist taught the emulator who taught the example, and then they became evangelists themselves. And oftentimes, we can do all three of these at the same time. I want to be a missionary to China one day. I want to leave and go to China. Well, how do you get there? You don't start by being an evangelist to China. Here's how it starts. When the evangelist gives the message of the good news, you believe it and receive it. What do I do next? Go to China? No, not yet. You become an example. I'm sorry, an emulator. You become a disciple. You follow someone who's above you spiritually. Then can I go to China? No, not yet. Let's see if you can disciple others in your own context. Sadly, oftentimes in missions, I, 
I see that we will send those who we have really no need for here in our own place to the other side of the world. We would never listen to them preach in our own land. They're lazy in our own land. They're not a good communicator in our own land. They're not a good evangelist in our own church. Let's send them to Indonesia. Well, if we're not able to communicate and disciple and evangelize in our own language, however are we going to do it in another language and another culture, which is twice as difficult? No, hear the message of the gospel. Emulate someone above you and then become an example yourself. And then, maybe then, We'll be ready to send those people around the world as missionaries. I close with this illustration. Did you know, young people, that many of the great missionary movements through church history began with teenagers? Young people just like you. In the 1800s, there was a university still around today in Scotland, called St. Andrews. And there's a book entitled St. Andrews 7. It's the story of a professor and six of his students. This university was going downward. It was cold spiritually, and it was dying. But the school did a good thing. It hired the brightest star in the evangelical universe, His name was Thomas Chalmers. And he comes to this frigid university where most of the professors didn't even believe in God anymore. And he comes in like a rocket. And the the church and the school explodes. They had to knock out the windows in the auditorium because it was standing room only. Here are the young people, and by the way, young people know if the guy who's speaking really believes what he says. They can spot hypocrisy so quickly. And they said, this guy, this guy really believes what he says. He actually really believes the Bible. He starts teaching the Bible. They become overwhelmed with missionary zeal. They start their own mission society. They start reading missionary biographies. They start their own prayer groups. They start gatherings where they talk about missions. And then they say, well, wait a minute. Maybe we should be missionaries ourselves. Ah, and then someone poured cold water on their plans. Do you know that then and even today, what often is the greatest deterrent to missions throughout the world today? Christian parents. I've found that oftentimes it's the parents of young people that are the greatest deterrent for their children going around the world. And it was the same way with the St. Andrew 7. They start emulating their hero, Thomas Chalmers. He's influencing them to go to the mission field, and then the parents discourage it. Oh, we sing the song, Give of thy sons to bear the message glorious. Give of thy wealth to speed them on their way, just as long as it's not my own son. And they discourage them from going. You'll be a failure. You can't go. You have too much talent here. Why waste the education? And then one day, a young man by the name of John Urquhart 
became very sick. He was 18 years old and one of the leaders of the group. He became so sick that suddenly he died. And the other five gathered together and they said, well, wait a minute. If he can die right here in the comfort of our homeland, we, we could die anywhere. We might as well give our lives for Christ and serving him with all of our hearts. And they went to India. Hundreds of years of combined missionary service flowed from those men. Men like Alexander Duff, who became great missionaries. And it all started with an evangelist, Thomas Chalmers, who influenced those young men, whom they followed and then became disciplers themselves until they, in turn, became evangelists around the world. One of the young men said these words, looking back at Thomas Chalmers. It was not so much his words as the virtue that went out of him that turned our hearts to the heathen. Oh, may God give this church, this flock, an assembly full of evangelists, emulators, and examples. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for delivering us from the wrath to come. Lord, raise up within this assembly believers who will spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, emulate their spiritual betters, and then become disciplers themselves that we may flood the foreign mission fields with missionaries for the cause of Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.